Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. I am your host. My name is Josh Peck. And your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. Man, God, this doesn't get easier, God damn it! I keep praying that I just have something remotely like interesting and thought-provoking that'll just spew out of me the moment I hit record on this little machine I have. But inevitably, it's never, uh, it's, it's never great. These rants. What am I saying? What are you saying? It's my my awful attempt at a Seinfeld. What's the deal with rants? What do you want to be unfiltered? Why don't you just come up with a bit? Anyway, (laughs) this is going swimmingly. Um, What was I thinking about today? Oh, I was driving by a billboard the other day, and I guess like Dax Shepard has a new, um, like a new game show that he's hosting. Which, by the way, good for him because like. I mean, first of all, it seems like every famous person alive has a game show that they host now because I'm pretty sure, like, the schedule is awesome and it's just a dumb, like, just a, a just a, an aggressive amount of money for, like, not the most work. So, from that standpoint, I totally get it. I mean, listen, the last thing you need to fucking hear is some actor complaining about, like, the daily schedule of their cushy half-hour TV show job. But, you know, it tends to be quite long. I mean, if you're on Law & Order SVU, you're working 10 months a year, 16 hours a day. Sure, you're making half a million dollars a week, but still the time commitment. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think for most people when they hear like, wow, I can work a month and make a ridiculous amount of money. Yes, game show, I'm in. What are we doing? Who's, who's you know, running through a gauntlet in order to win $14,000 and a base model Toyota Corolla? Just hand over the cards. I'm ready. Which wheel do I have to spin? Um, but anyway, Dak Shepard is, is hosting this new show. And then on the billboard, it says, a new fancy... It doesn't say this, but this and these are my words. A new fancy game show hosted by Dak Shepard from the executive producer, Justin Timberlake. And now listen... No hate against Justin Timberlake because you'd have to be a fucking fool to hate him. What's not to like? The man seems charming, lovely, incredibly, like, dumb talented. He can do it all. However, no part of me is more incentivized to watch a game show because Justin Timberlake has anything to do with it. This is ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> from the from executive producer Lance Bass, it's Don's cooking show. I don't care what Lance Bass thinks of cooking. It's not going to incentivize me. I just, I mean, I guess it's just clout chasing, right? Like, clout chasing. Who the fuck am I? I'm a 32-year-old man. I'm working hard on acting more my age because, I, I, you know, uh, inherently the people that know me or watch me to a certain extent, like, they, they, they tend to skew younger. And I did this kid show that is on reruns forever, so it captures young people, which, which is a blessing, period, also can be slightly a bit of a curse at times because then I feel like I'm constantly sort of curtailing myself to do um, the most like relatable um, 
it's a thing for them. And and at times it gets quasi-ridiculous and inevitably doesn't, you know, land for them because they're like, what? You're the age of my dad and why why are you trying to make us laugh? Just be yourself. Um, so anyway, I'm trying to I'm I'm trying not to fall into that trap as much. Anyway, people, I mean, it must be clout chasing, as the kids say, you know, putting Justin Timberlake's name on there, because again, the man is an American treasure. But what he has to add to the game show landscape, well, I'm not sure. Um. I've been trying to write down notes throughout the week of things to talk about. In my notes, it says life is not binary, which I'm sure at the time I wrote it felt incredibly insightful. And now I'm like, what, Josh? What are these like musings of a madman? Life is not binary. Let, let, let me give you a round of applause for that insight, young Buddha. <laughs> like... But it is in binary, right? Like, I don't know. I find lately, and as a rule, I tend to always look at, like, the black and white of it all. I'm, ooh, ooh, okay, now I got it. So I, I've decided, like, I'm going to try to make it more of a regular habit. I really got into the podcast To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, a couple weeks ago. And I, I talked about it on the pod, and in turn... Not only did the creator of the podcast reach out to me and say he wanted to do the pod, which is dope... But more so, it just, you know, turned people on to this podcast and they were like, wow, this really was dope. Thanks for suggesting it. So I figure, you know, like there's the landscape is in a word bloated. There's so many friggin podcasts out there. So why not? Like maybe I'll make it a weekly thing. I don't know of suggesting podcasts I'm listening to. One such podcast is called uh, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, It's quite good. It is hosted by this comedian who's incredibly funny, whose name escapes me at this moment. But there's a specific episode where he interviews a guy named Dan Harris um, that I I think you guys are going to love. It's just quite good. And anyway, the mental illness happy hour. Overall, I've listened to a couple of episodes thus far. It's quite good. And I think on that pod, they were talking about sort of like that life isn't binary and we tend to con- catastrophize things and feel like if something doesn't work out or, 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 you know, it doesn't live up to expectation, then it's all bad. Um, but inevitably sort of life is one large gray area. It's going to be the name of my my biography. One large gray area. Josh Peck's life. I don't feel good about that at all. I don't know. I No, I'm going to have to do some doper shit if I have any hope of writing like a biography that people would write. I guess it'd be an autobiography if I wrote it myself. But inevitably, it's like, who wants to read that? I don't know. Um, what else? Is there anything else? Fourth of July's coming up. Should be fine. So many holidays. Look, I, I do enjoy the summer, but as a person who's never quite felt comfortable taking their shirt off, I am not looking forward to, like, the myriad of holidays coming up where, like, having not a lot of clothes on is completely in fashion, promoted and encouraged. I, I'm not looking forward to this. You know, if, if anyone can relate out there, it's like the people who have been, like, so, you know, so easily 
people out there who have who have easily been able to sort of whip their shirt off at a moment's notice, male or female. No, you know, we're not we're we're not gender shaming here. Um, but you know, it's it's something that one would take for granted. And if anyone out there is like me and someone who like forever has been quite sort of terrified about moments in which where we've had to show more than the normal amount of skin fucking I totally understand that. Like I get that in a big way. And I, I think that people probably if you don't deal with that issue, I'd love to know what that's like. Because that's a gift to not worry about it. And I see those people. They're out there. They exist. They're not just on Instagram. They are at your local YMCA pool. They're on the beaches, your local beaches from Myrtle Beach to Zuma Beach. They're everywhere. These people who have just the audacity to feel okay with the skin they're in. And I know what you're saying. I know out there you're like, well, you know. Just because Tanya doesn't mind throwing on a two-piece doesn't mean she goes home not worrying about the way she looks. You know what? I would love to have Tanya's problem, okay? I would love to be able to wear board shorts and have those beautiful dick lines from my abdomen into the waistband of my, of, of, of my bathing suit and have those, those cute little back dimples and also be worried about the way I look. That... That would be a problem I would welcome. Instead, I'm the guy who's like thinking to myself, can I be 32 and wear a rash guard? Does, you know, does Ralph Lauren make a, make a rash guard that's kind of cool and that people wouldn't judge me for? Can I just wear a t-shirt in the pool? Can I not go to the pool? How do I get out of this pool party? <laughs> it's not easy. It's not an easy thing. And in other news, I think I'm going to go back to therapy. I've taken six months off and I don't feel great about it. So for anyone out there thinking about maybe going and visiting their mental health provider for a quick little tune-up, maybe just a little bit, little little talk therapy, a little CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Maybe you just want to go see a guidance counselor or some sort of uh, just sort of sage with a little bit of wisdom. I would encourage it because I myself am I'm making an appointment this week. So uh, if you're my psychologist and you're listening to this, oh, it's weird that you listen to this. On today's show, Lena Esco. My friend, she is a filmmaker and actress. We did this bugged out, really dope short together called The Doors um, by my friend who directed it and wrote it named Simon Cash. And we just became close while doing this short because it was sort of a wild experience. And I got to know her and just see how impressive and smart and funny and thoughtful she is. She directed a movie called Free the Nipple, um, which had a bunch of like incredibly great sort of fanfare and uh and, and it also sort of spoke to this movement that is this real thing um and I just uh yeah I I couldn't be more excited to have her on the show and to share her with you guys so please enjoy Lena my most rewarding job ever was being the host of the Curious Podcast. I'm not BSing. I actually, I, I love this. I'm a, I'm, I'm a podcast junkie. I listen to them nonstop. And now being able to talk people's ear off for an hour plus that wouldn't normally want to talk to me feels very lucky. Look, 
Are you looking for a rewarding job? Well, LinkedIn's got 20 million of them. Jobs like software engineer, project manager, associate veterinarian, robotics engineer, HR manager, associate attorney. There are all kinds of open jobs on LinkedIn you can search for and people ready to help you make the change you're looking for. People giving great career advice every day. People helping people learn new skills, people making introductions, and people hiring. So you can find a job that makes the most of your interests and experience. Find the job that was meant for you at linkedin.com slash jobs. That's linkedin.com slash jobs. Yep. Wait, so you were telling me about not bad audition stories, but just the dynamic of the audition. It's always awkward. It's Um, terrible. It's... It is terrible. And the thing is, I think you and I were just agreeing on the fact that we're hypersensitive enough that the moment we walk in, we can feel right away if they're into us or not. And unfortunately, it, it's, it sucks for us because we, that ends up getting in our heads. So when we're all prepared and we're there to pour our hearts out, it doesn't feel like we should because we don't want to be rejected. So we kind of recoil and then our performances are probably not as good as we thought they were going to be. And I'm also like, I'm walking that line of that. I, I agree with you that I do sort of have that lack of, or I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm able to pick up on the signals and the energy in the room. And yet sometimes I'm so in my own neurotic fuckery space that I start to project onto them. So the fact that they didn't like say hi to me in the right way. I'm like, Oh fuck this. Yeah. Like I yeah, start yeah. projecting like the dad I never met on them. Right. And it gets bad quick. No, it really, it, yeah, it does. It does. So I don't know what trick to do. People say, Oh, try to blank it out or try to shut it down. But I'm like, you can't, you're, that's the reason why we do what we do is because we're sensitive beings and we're able to tap into certain things that, you know, some people can't because we are extremely sensitive and that there's a curse to that too. So Sometimes I wish uh, they can just have us all just send tapes. And then from there, if they like something that we did, they're like, okay, we would love to see you personally. Then you don't feel as rejected because you did something right. And you're walking in a room knowing that these people actually like you. Right. Well, I think the disheartening part of it is that in our business for 99% of us, like no matter if you've had a job or any sort of amount of prestige or accomplishment, inevitably you do something and then you get right back in line. Mm-hmm. Like there's no finish line. There's no there, there, Lena. Never. There's no there, there. And there's never a right formula for it. And right. that's the tricky part. There's no such things. Hey, if you do A, B, C, and D, you'll get there and you'll be able to like keep afloat. No, no, no. There's no such thing as that. But, and what kills me too is like, and I've heard writers talk about this and they're right, which is that they have a picture in their mind of who it is. And so when you walk in or I walk in and we're either completely the wrong person for it or what have you, it's like they make a snap judgment and I can't hate them for it because I probably would too. But I want to be like, do you understand that I've been like practicing this in my boxers in, <laughs> my, like, in, in the bathroom of my like two bedroom apartment for three days? Yeah, yeah. Like I've been imagining what the craft service was going to taste like yeah. when I got the fucking job. Oh, <laughs> no, it's it. It sucks because. I can also feel in the room when they have already made their choice of who it's going to be, but they still have to do it because I think that's part of the protocol with SAG. You have to uh, see a certain amount of actors. So you, you, really? So, yeah, there's a thing where 
they have to make sure there's opportunities for everyone, even though they know who it is. They have mm. to they have to go through a protocol to meet other actors. So I've walked in those rooms many times, and I know that they already picked their person, and they're just doing it to do it, and they're just trying to like move on quickly. And I feel that, and then I'm like, fuck you, like <laughs> I'm sorry, fuck you. Yeah. Do you have any um, like horror stories? I, I've of course there's been plenty of them. I think, you know. 99% of the times you knock on the door, they're not going to open. It's always, always at 1%. And so in all those 99 times or whatever, uh, you have horror stories and you have great stories and you have ones that have turned around to be amazing where you're like, fuck this shit, I'm out of here, this is not for me, you, I'm the wrong person. You walk out of the room and they're like, hey, hey, let's talk, like, come, coming back in. Like, they kind of see past that right. and they actually see it as a good thing and some other people have seen it as a bad thing. So it depends, you know, what casting director it is. I've had auditions for things that I didn't necessarily want, but it was like pilot season. I'm like, it would be really nice to be able to tell people that I still am a working actor. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and I've like sat in waiting rooms for things I didn't even want. And now it's like half an hour, an hour goes by. And now I'm doing the fucking calculations in my head. I'm like, I'm going to go. I'm just going to leave. <laughs> and they're going to see my name on the call sheet. And they're going to be like, where'd Josh go? Wow. <laughs> He was like too proud to stay. Good for him. Like we don't deserve him. Like he's too good. But I never leave. It'll be like I'm always about to go, and then I hear my name called, and I'm like, yes, right away, sir. What, I have a story. I'm not gonna say who it is, but I found I found that the way it was handled was really fucked up. Uh, there's a friend of mine who doesn't have any representation, who is a great fucking actor. Uh, she really is, and I'm still surprised she hasn't been signed, and a lot of the reasons why she's not signed is because she doesn't fall into the stereotypical uh, look of the so-called perfection of a woman that Hollywood always wants, so... What does that mean? Well, you know, I think media and fashion and... They, they show you an image of what beauty is, which is a girl that's, you know, fit, a girl that has perfect skin, a girl that's tall, a girl like that has boobs, a girl that has an ass, all these things that majority of us can never relate to, you know, in, sure. in certain ways. Um, and so she had, was like, fuck this, like, this is crazy, you know? So she hasn't been able to get an agent or a manager. Um, and I think she's, she's fucking brilliant at what she does. And so there was a moment where somebody said, hey, you know, you should go for this audition. And she's like, well, I'm not in the system and blah, blah, blah. So she found a way to get in the system, like sneak in through the guards and whatever, and put her name on a list at the casting room. And then they call her name and she's inside the casting room and they go, hey, your name is not here. Are you, were you? And she's like, oh yeah, no, no, I am supposed to be here. And she decided to, after that whole thing, stick, like her face was like, she didn't care, and she went into the she did the whole audition in front of this casting director. Can you believe that? Like, be, feeling like holy shit, I can get really in trouble. But she went through it, and she fucking walked out of there saying she killed it. And then they were able to track her down. And then they they said, "Don't you ever do that again?" Like they were actually mad about it, and they were so oh, really? angry, and they treated her like shit. And I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" If I was a casting director and somebody does it, and they do something great, and they're not right for it, I said, "Listen." I get it. Don't ever do that. Whatever. But you were fucking amazing. And like, you know, right. like they actually held it against her. They like threatened her. Oh, yeah. That was not the way I expected that story to go. Well, now you know. I thought you were going to be like, and, and her name was Jennifer Lawrence. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's bugged out. Yeah. I mean, 
that's so wild. And also, like, you know, you hear the stories about, like, Heath Ledger going in for the Joker audition with the makeup on and that he smeared it right before he, like, walked in. Or I'm sure Tom Hardy's done some dope shit like that. Or like, I don't have any of those stories, Lena. Like, it's always <laughs> me, like, in the waiting room wondering, like, did I, is this shirt slimming? Like, did I? Yeah, but also, like, these guys went to a level of, doing all this shit when their confidence level was up and they were doing huge shit. You know what I mean? So like walking in there, I was like, their confidence level was at another level. Like they were not being rejected. Mm. They've been already fucking offered movie after movie. So of course walking in there and smearing all the makeup out of his, like on his face in the middle of walking in, like that's still nerve wracking, but it's still like that confidence that he's had, you know? Yeah. He was already kind of Heath Ledger. Yeah. He was already killing the game. Exactly. Yeah. It's an interesting yeah, it's uh, it's a wild thing that we've we've sort of entered into, and it's like whatever. It's champagne problems, right? Like yeah. up down problems. Yeah. But inevitably, like, are you fascinated by? That's when I see how so many actors lose their fucking minds in their forties, and I'm like, well, the system kind of beats any sanity out of you. Mm-hmm. And and funny enough, like I've and I'm sure you've been in this place where those rare occasions where I've like booked a job and been on the other side of the audition because they were like, oh, we need to audition your love interest or whomever and we want to see if there's good chemistry. Maybe you can come to the audition. It's like I can't I don't remember a single person from it. Right. And and when you're on the other side of it, it's so personal. You're like, do you know what I've invested here? Yeah. But on the other side of it, they're just kind of like, yeah, you're fine. You're just not right. Thanks yeah, for coming. Thanks for coming. You know, when's lunch? They're just I know. worried it about It happened lunch. to me once when I was actually casting um, Free the Nipple, a movie that I directed a while back, and right. Jen Houston was casting my film. And I, for the first time ever, I had to sit on the other side and watch girls and guys and older guys, older girls walking in and auditioning for my first feature film that I was directing. And mm. that, for me, like, I made sure that I was very caring Yes. And giving them the attention that I, I sometimes feel like some people don't give me in the room in the sense of like, I don't want you to tell me I've got the job or any of that, but have a little respect right. or, you know, put your phone away. Or I've had, you know, situations where I've been in audition and people are just on their phones or stuff like that. So I made sure I did all the things that I didn't want anyone doing to me. Mm-hmm. And so, and even, and giving them that care, you know, and having conversations with them, asking them questions and giving them the time that... They all deserve because they put a lot of work into going to that room. So. Yes. I always imagine, fantasize in my head that if I ever wrote or directed something and that I was sort of in charge of the casting, having been such like a journeyman actor my entire life and, you know, had to fight for everything, I always think like, I wouldn't offer it to anyone even if I could get Tom Hanks. Like, <laughs> I would let the best actor win. I don't care about names. Of yeah. course, once I get in that position, I'll probably yeah. be like, Tom Hanks? Fuck, I'll take, you know. Yeah, I'll d- take you. I'll, I'll take fucking Tom Clancy. I don't know. I'll take any Tom, anyone named yeah, Tom. Yeah, but unfortunately, with all these festivals, they, they come across like, oh, yeah, we care about the art and all this stuff. And you have, like, young filmmakers trying to make their films, and they're forced to always put a name in it. So the festival pays, pays attention to it. You sure. know, it's so tough, you know. And that was something that everyone ever said, like, oh, make sure you put a name in your movie. Make sure you – yeah, did my movie struggle more because I didn't have a name? Yeah, absolutely. If I had a name, would have would have done more? Absolutely, which sucks. Mm. Festivals should be able to sign movies that they connect with with no names. But unfortunately, majority of the time, there's always a name. And, you know, you talk about, like, directing your movie, Free the Nipple, and, and just in me knowing you this long, I really, like, I know that you're no bullshit. 
and like you get behind things that you care about, you're passionate and like, and you talk about your friend who was like not in quotes, the typical standard of Hollywood beauty or whatever. And you seem to be like, have always fought for that and, and so hyper aware of it. And yet it seems to me as an outsider from the male perspective, you check so many of those boxes just in your outside appearance. So like, how did you come to that understanding or have that realization early on that maybe other people, other women weren't getting a fair shake in the business? Um, well, number one, I, I didn't ask for this, you know, like, sure. you know, but I've always been that person. I've been uncomfortable with the way I look, believe it or not. As a kid, I was always hiding behind my hair. I was always, you know, in middle school or the beginning part of high school, I was hiding in the bathroom during lunchtime because I didn't want anybody seeing that. I didn't know where to sit in whose table and be a part of what clique girl, that all of that stuff. So I've always been kind of awkward and weird in that sense. Mm. Um, but I also empathize and I understand what it is to see all these billboards of a specific kind of woman that everyone should be or a man that everyone should be and, 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 and just be upset about it. Um, you can't be what you don't see. Mm. You know, if, and that goes into, for example, having a superhero that um, is a woman of color, is a woman of race, is a woman of, uh, of all kinds of things that, you know, what a superhero should be. And that's ridiculous. You know, one of my best friends, um, Emmy, she wears a hijab, you know, and she's a fucking badass. And uh, I still walk around in the streets of L.A. and people look at her like, I don't know, it feels like either I'm walking next to Tom Cruise or I'm walking next to uh, uh, a terrorist. And, and that's what people look and they stare down at to the point where like, I'm like, what the fuck are you looking at? But then if we had normalized a, a superhero with a hijab, then it would have been acceptable. And it also would have been better for her, her growing up and feeling like, wow, there's somebody out there like me. Mm. And that's what we're starting to see a little bit more representation of the minorities and obviously different looks and stuff. And, um, and yeah, like every, there's there's a revolution going on in social media, and that I've 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 tried to be a part of in terms of highlighting it. Where you know what? Fuck you. Yeah, I do have stretch marks. Yeah, fuck you. My boob is bigger than the other. Fuck you. I have cellulite. Fuck you. I have four rolls in my stomach, or I have this. Fuck you. I have this. Like owning up to this shit and taking taking that power back from you know beauty companies and all that kind of shit that they just make so much money out of women's insecurities. Um, there's a great documentary called misrepresentation about actually this, which, which I love. Um, but, but I try to be an advocate for people that are not represented, represented. And, and that really is something that I've always taken with me in any trajectory that I do is because there needs to be representation of all kinds of women. You know, all of a sudden after you're 40, you're, no one looks at you. Or after you're 50, I, mean, I think about every time I walk down the streets and I see all these older women, like no one fucking looks at them. Why? Because they're, they've, they've passed that fucking, you know, perfect time. So I try yeah. to actively look for those situations where I'm making eye contact to them and I'm looking at them and I'm smiling at them and acknowledging them. Because all of a sudden women become invisible after a certain age. And that really upsets me. And also women become invisible if they're a different size, if they look a different way, if they're a different race, color, you name it. And so I try to give attention to those things because it's fact, that's what I attract in my life. Minorities and people that are going through shit who end up becoming my best of friends, you know, um, 
But I think I think you're right in the sense of, and I've always picked up on that too, is in the business there's like this crazy double standard for men and women. And it feels like if you are a female who starts out in your early 20s, you need to succeed twice as fast as any other man. Because to your point, like you're going to hit this weird moment in your like early 30s where you've become like you're kind of the mom, you're kind of not, maybe you've aged out of like the rom-com roles. And then all of a sudden it, you know, like there's only one Meryl Streep, there's only one Kathy Bates or, or Diane Keaton, but you know, men, it becomes like, well, they really grow into themselves in their forties. And then Mm -hmm. they like have this beautiful, you know, sort of age, you know, the, that men age in a specific way. And, and I, and it's, I'm sure it's crazy making, it is. And, and yeah, there's hints of, you know, areas that things are changing. But, you know, just like Glenn Close said, I think her movie took like almost 10 years to make because the movie, number one, was called The Wife. Mm. And she's a much older actress leading in a movie. I'm thinking, are you fucking kidding me? We need more of those movies. And um, she killed it. I mean, she was incredible in that movie. But can you believe no one wanted to finance a movie called The Wife? I mean, so I should, what should we name it? The husband? I mean, so there's all these things that are still happening and those stories are still being talked about. Uh, but yeah, there, you, you know, you have other shows that are starting to highlight and show what women really look like. Um, I'm working on one right now with my writing partner that I'm really excited about. Uh, and we are going and diving into those worlds, um, no Did- matter what. Look, there's a widely held belief that procrastination is a bad thing, but life isn't so black and white. Sometimes procrastination can work in your favor. Thank God. Listen, this is the best news I've heard all day. Allow me to read on. For example, if you need life insurance, but you've been putting it off, congratulations. You've managed to procrastinate long enough for technology to make it easy. Guys, listen, I've got life insurance and it was something that I put off for a long time because who wants to think about it? But the truth is, it's the best thing you can do for your family and policy genius makes it that much easier because policy genius is the easy way to shop for insurance online in just two minutes you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price once you apply the policy genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape no sales pressure no hidden fees just financial protection and peace of mind so if you need life insurance, but you've been busy doing literally anything else, check out Policy Genius. It's an easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. PolicyGenius.com. Nobody wants to shop for life insurance. That's why we made it easy. Did anyone ever hold it against you that because you you have these this insight and this belief and you've always like worked so hard for these things that you're passionate about, but that maybe they felt like, but how could you understand? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's happened before. Uh, yeah, well, sure. You're doing free the nipple because, you know, you don't mind being topless because you have a nice body. Well, <laughs> I wanted to do free the nipple because I wanted to start a conversation about gender equality and the nipple was going to be the Trojan horse. That was the first thing I thought about. I've always been insecure about my body, specifically right after I was raped when I was uh, 17. I hadn't even had sex before. So that fucked up the perception of how I looked. And, and like I, I saw myself completely different. Um, 
but I wanted to do it because it was important to start a conversation. And I, I'm, I've always been a rebel. I'm like, fuck you. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do that. And I made sure that every woman that I, that I cast as a, as a topless warriors in the film were from all shapes and sizes and colors. And, and it was that's the way I did it. In fact, I had a woman that had one boob only and mm. she had just survived breast cancer. Um, so I made sure that I, I, I saw that and I highlighted that in the film, but yeah, I've had so many people come up to me, you know, around the time where we were campaigning for free the nipple and saying those things. Well then, okay. So, so because I look a certain way, I shouldn't do it. You know, I, I, I'm a rebel and I will do anything it takes, and I'm an activist to do this, to get the word out. And I had to play the game and I did. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've had people talk about that and that, and I can't change that. Right. And it's bullshit. Like, yeah. you know, that's like, uh, yeah, it's just, that becomes like a double negative. Like I'm not qualified to, to sort of feel real things and have that insight. Do you, for, for you, did, did you feel like having the trauma that you had when you were 17, does it almost become like life before that moment and life after? I don't know. I think coming into terms with what happened then, because it happened twice. Have um, you talked about this? Yeah. I mean, now I'm open about it and yeah. talking about it. Um, but I think it it helped going to therapy and, and going into hypnotherapy, which went into all these things that I was like suppressing, you know, mm. um, it took a while to be open about talking about this. So, um, yeah, it changes a lot. It changes everything. You know, you're the first time I ever went topless was while we we're shooting free the nipple. I'd never done that in my life. I actually ran through times square and I did it. And it was the most liberating scariest thing one of the scariest things i've ever done next to jumping off an airplane and skydiving you know right. but it was liberating and it was empowering because there's a thing called in america uh we can sexualize a female body as much as we can we just can't show the vagina and the nipples but we can make money out of every single part of the body and we can sexualize it objectify it but the moment a woman just removes that little pasty out of her nipple she's condemned for it and so, again, being topless does not equal to nudity, just as much as if a man's topless, it does not equal to nudity. So having that ownership and doing that, it's still creating crazy uh, reactions here in uh, the United States of uh, puritanical America. But what's, so what do you think that's born out of, that level of suppression? Is that like... Religion. Religion. I think... Uh, we're, we're terrified of yeah, women. Yeah, and we're, you know, Puritans. Yeah. In our DNA. Uh, I think it's... I think there's people like to control that. I mean, the only way you can see a woman topless is, is at a strip club. Is it still illegal? Yeah, it's still illegal. It's been legal s since 1992 in New York City, but but it's still um, it's still illegal in a way because majority. Wait, it's legal, but it's illegal? it's legal. But then you can still get arrested because they can't keep track of what police officers are are educated on the laws and not and that stuff. So, I mean, it's it's all the way it is and I don't know if it's going to change. I, yeah, I wonder I get, you know, it's so look, the worst version of it, right, is is when a woman has to be completely covered up, mm -hmm. right? Because like they're so in fear that men are such feral animals that they can't control themselves if god forbid they see an elbow right. or the back of a fucking knee. And so, you know, for certain scenarios where that's like the rule of law or religious law, it 
you know, the, how, how deeply women suffer. And yet even here still, I mean, you think about like 10 years ago when Janet Jackson showed her nipple and the world turned upside down and like Adam Levine's doing a strip tease this year. But that's so crazy. If you think about what happened post that um, Super Bowl, I think it was almost 10 years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, who had a career after that? Justin Timberlake. Janet Jackson didn't have a career on right. that. And um, there's all these things that were said about Les Moonves, you know, kind of shutting the whole thing down for her because you had around 500,000 really bored Americans that went and called the PTC and complained about it. 500,000? 500, 500, 500,000. That's fucking yeah. bananas. And so they, they find CBS around that. And obviously the person that they were going after was Janet Jackson, Janet Jackson, which wasn't really her fault. It was a nipple shield. And her nipple wasn't really out. It was a nipple shield that was out for less than half a second. And it was part of, like, it wasn't, they were, it, he just happened to grab it and it just came out. It wasn't planned or any of that, but she was the one that was condemned for it. Right. Not him. And so her career kind of stalled after that. And, uh, and it's fucked up. Because at the end of the day, it was both of them. They should have paid 50-50 for that whole thing. And they should have uh, did, but at the time, you know, now we're living in different times. These things are being paid attention to. Back then, it wasn't. And are women still... Like, I remember at the height when your movie was coming out and sort of at the height of the free, free the Nipple movement, like, wasn't it one of the, one of Bruce Willis's daughters was oh, yeah, rocking rumor, around, rumor, rumor was, uh, yeah. was rocking around topless? No, actually it was a Scout. Yeah. She had a rebellious moment against social media. Like, we've all had so many times where we start asking questions like, are you kidding me? This is acceptable and this is not. You can sell guns on Instagram and heroin. You can do all the shit and you can show beheadings of women, but this is wrong. Sure. So when that started to hit a chord, everyone started doing that. And Scout was, you know, just did a very innocent picture just walking down New York City topless while she was just, you know, shopping. And what was the reaction? People went nuts. People went nuts and, you know, they did what they did, but she proved the point again and again and again. And so did other celebrities that came on board and did that. So what was the, I'm interested to hear the conversation, right? Because, you know, this is, for me, as like the son of a single mom, you know, I feel fairly woke uh, yeah, you know, um, male, like I've always been aware of like sort of the, just not being the gross dude. Like, just don't be the fucking gross guy. Don't be that guy. And it goes again, sort of like the way I'm built. And yet now, and the way the conversation's been expressed over the last few years, it's like there were nuanced, subtle ways that women were suffering that I wasn't even aware of just because I was a dude. And I like remember one specific thing when I was working on a movie or a TV show, and there was this actress who was the lead of the show, like the star of, of the TV show. And one of the actors walked into the makeup trailer and she was in the makeup, you know, getting her makeup done. And he just kind of went behind her and started massaging her shoulders. And I remember like in that moment and, and her and I were friends and we kind of like looked at each other. And I think his sort of thing was like trying to be friendly but would he have done that to a dude? I don't know. And I remember feeling like remembering that stick out to me in that moment, but not quite knowing what it was. And then years later when the conversation really came to light the way it has thinking, ah, 
like these are the subtle little things that like people are talking about right that was so easy to gloss over so like was before this all sort of came to light was there a conversation amongst actresses of like can you fucking believe this shit i think there were uncomfortable conversations that happened that i had with other actors that were close to me Mm. i think people that we worked with i think we're all afraid you know it's not like it's it's so much harder when you have your job on the line and you've seen people or your agents or your managers at the time saying don't say anything just ignore it just just let it go just let it go you know as opposed to now it's different like now it's you have every i think every job now has this whole tutorial on sexual um sexual assaults and stuff like that and how you should handle it if you see it in your workplace and stuff right you've never had that well why why didn't you guys do that back then why wasn't there anybody protecting us and men as well so um the conversations were always with the people that you felt comfortable with i had many many conversations with my best friends about it you know about certain situations that felt weird and and how they just you know you would go to an audition and that would extend to like, let me take you out for uh, lunch to try to make it like it was casual. And then you, you're like, oh, lunch is not that bad. It feels like it's fine. You know, I want this job. And he's saying like, let's talk about it more. Sure. You know, and you go for lunch and then you're just like, well, then you feel awkward. And then if, maybe you don't lead on to any of it. And then all of a sudden they stop calling you. And you're like, wait, what did I do wrong? But that was like when you're younger and you're just like, wait, what did I do wrong? Like I did everything right. So that's when it gets confusing but yeah this is this is what we've all been dealing with for so long you know what is there one thing in particular that that was like just a common thing like what what do you suspect that most women have dealt with be it in life or in the business specifically that are like these subtle sort of you know creepy type shit that 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 you've had to deal with i mean i dealt it with harvey weinstein Oh, Harvey? Yeah. Get right out of town. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me everything. When the whole thing came out, I was one of the girls uh, that the Washington Post uh, talked to. And that was something I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't search for it to mm. talk about it because I wasn't a victim at the level of other women were because, because of what happened to me when I was younger, I was able to get out of that situation and handle somebody as demonic as him. Mm. But at the time when I first met him, he was very charming and I met him through one of my best friend's and she's been friends with him for a while. Um, but she's, you know, she's out there. She's different. She's, uh, you know, she's got a different perception of life. She's like a fairy, but like, I don't know. She's very out there. So their friendship was very unique to me. So when I was invited first to, to go meet him, we all were just having dinner actually at the peninsula. And, and he was very respectful. Actually, we ended up bonding over the history of films and certain movies. And he was kind of impressed of uh, with me because I knew so much about old movies and uh and that's when he goes well we should talk like and he knew that i was on a journey about wanting to direct my first feature and i saw it as an opportunity to stay in touch with him because he asked me for my number and um and when harvey weinstein asked for your number you give it like yeah. male female this was uh, 2010 or 2011 i don't remember but he asked for my number and he goes let's keep in touch you know it's good that you're doing this it's good that you're going to be directing and da, da da and he was actually impressed with the fact that i knew so much about old movies, you know? Right. And so sure enough, like six months later or something, he ended up texting me, Hey, come and have uh, dinner with me at the peninsula. I had just gotten out of the gym and I don't really want to get into it, but we ended up, I ended up going over there and, um, and in the, through the middle, we were having lunch and every, or dinner and we were just talking. And then all of a sudden that conversation out of nowhere shifted into, 
um, we should go on a date. We should, we should go and kiss. We should go and make out. Like, and he just kept pressuring and pressuring and pressuring to the point where like, I felt so awkward. And I, and you know, he's got a very intense way of looking at you. So it was really intense and, uh, it took a lot for me to, and I remember just feeling my cheeks kind of just burning from, didn't know what to do, you know, this man. And then he keeps talking about all his powerful things that he does. And he did say to me, and I don't remember when it came because this was just like so intense and came out of nowhere that he, he said to me, you know, everything could just be more easier for you. Like everything just could be easier. And that's so, I just remember, I just wanted to get the fuck out of there. And I just felt so trapped. And, um, and then I was able to pay my bill and leave. And it was just very, very awkward and weird. And it fucked my head up. So such a long story, but that was kind of the gist of it all. Did, was there any immediate sort of fallout from that? Can you well, say no? what happened was, and this is where the reason why when Washington Post asked me to speak about it, because the only reason why they knew that I had any connection to him was because he had a special thanks credit in the Free the Nipple film sure. on IMDb. And so I, I, the reason why I did speak was because if I didn't, then I would be part of the problem. Mm. So I ended up speaking about my experience and I did say like what happened between me and him is not as bad as what happened to other women. I was able to get out of the situation because I've been through these situations that I had the nerve to just, you know, stand up to him and do what I did to get out of the situation. But when I was shooting Free the Nipple, one of the girls that I worked with had worked for him. And when we couldn't get editors to help fix my film, because I went through every problem you could have possibly imagined, editors couldn't fix the problem. We had all these issues. My friend that worked with him said, why don't you call Harvey? And I was like, fuck him. And she goes, well, let's fuck, fuck him. Why don't you use him for what he did to you? Why don't you fucking use him? Just call him, ask him for a re- an editor. He likes to help filmmakers. So sure enough, I um, texted him. And I said, hey, do you, um, I'm in deep shit with my film. Do you have an editor, anyone that you recommend? He goes, give me five minutes. Secretary, as he calls her, called me. And she goes, I have this editor that's been with Harvey for many, many years. And I sent the film to his editor. And his editor said, yes, I can fix it. And then that was it. That was my only contact with Harvey on a phone, you know, three years later after what he did. So he must have had a guilt or something because he did that. Some people are like, well, why did you fucking go and ask for shit? And then you talk shit about him in the Washington Post after he helped you find an editor for your film. Who the fuck says that? Some people have said that. Oh, fuck him. And then I was like, well, first of all, I did it out of fuck you, Harvey. I'm going to use you because you fucking treated me like shit. And that was me and my friend talking about it who worked for him. She goes, fuck him. Let's fucking use him. And yeah. we did, and that's what I did, and that's why he has a credit. And he has a credit not because he asked me to give him a credit. I give him a credit out of just being nice. Just say, you know, special thanks for you for doing that. Look, evil, powerful people are, you know, great to get certain things done at the right time. And also, it's just like, you know, I understand you in such a compromised position. And at that point, before all these people were, there was like this mass deluge and, and draining of the swamps per se and and everyone was getting their comeuppance at this time that might have been your only sort of like validation you know it might have been like your only 
feeling of like, well, I felt completely mistreated and I can't go against him because he's like the grand wizard of the business, but at least let me get this like one piece of silver lining right. out of my interaction with this right. ghoul. Yeah, it's true. And that's what happened. I was like, fuck him. My friend's like, fuck him. Let's fucking use him now. Right. I was like, all right. And he, funny enough, I was like, it was like three or two years later and he texted me back instantly. He goes, my secretary, my secretary will call you. And she did. And they set up the whole thing up. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So at that moment or like when, when everything started coming down for people like Harvey, were you, did you ever think that it would happen? I mean. No, I don't think that I would ever see a day that all these men would be held accountable for what they did. Mm. And that's something where people would say like, how would you not see that? Like you're such an optimist. Well, I saw that toplessness would be much faster legal than this. And so seeing this whole thing kind of happen and free the nipple happened before all these movements, you know, this was around 2012, 2013. I mean, the movement really took off at the end of 2013 into 2014. What was the origin of it? Well, the movie was supposed to come first and, and the point of the movie was supposed to start a conversation and then the movement was going to happen. But when we started showing the film and we didn't do the festival route because I knew it wasn't going to resonate with these people because it was supposed to be a activist film about, you know, just two girls in New York City wanting to start a conversation about gender equality. And so that's how it all started. And so I didn't think it was going to resonate for them. So I went straight to the distribution companies. And um, in the beginning, when I started showing the film in 2013, People were like, well, there's no audience for this. You know, I don't know. This was literally the dialogue at the time, which is true. There was no audience for this. No one, journalists, media, they weren't talking about feminism the way it was talked about in 1972 in the 70s or in the early 20s when women were first won the right to vote. No one, this new wave of feminism hadn't come yet. And so um, when, when that started to happen, you know, when we started showing the film, everyone said the same thing. It's an interesting film. You know, we just don't think there's an audience for this. Cut to, I said, literally my words, fuck this shit. I'm going to start the movement and I'm going to prove them wrong. And I did. And then so the, the movie preceded the movement. Yeah. And the, and it was, uh, were you part of the writing of the movie? Yeah. Interesting. Yep. And it was, so how did you become hip to it? So, the, we, me and the, my writing partner at the time, Hunter, uh, and I, well, we, we came up with everything, and he was, he was the writer that, like, structured everything. Uh, we both came up with everything. And so, when, when it was happening, this was when we started talking about it. I mean, it all started from one of my best friends, who's the freest person I know, and I started shooting videos of her, you know, topless and naked and, like, but in the most innocent way possible, and I started creating this whole thing. We're like, holy shit, I want to do a whole movie around her. And then I sent it to uh, these videos to the, the investor who ended up giving me a million dollars to shoot my first feature. She goes, this is fucking amazing. Let's do, all, let's do this. Get me a script and I'll do it. So then after that, that's when we sat down with Hunter and we just worked on the script as much as we could. And then we, we ended up getting a million dollars to shoot the film. So, but... After the move, movement kind of took off in 2013, that's when distribution companies started calling. Mm. And then we ended up going with IFC and, um, and Netflix. And, uh, and that's how it all kind of started. 
And in, the movie was released in uh, December of 2000, uh, no, January of 2015. And what was it like being a first-time director on something like that? I mean, I still look back and I'm like, how did I do that? Like, Yeah, because you were like, what, like 25? Yeah, no, I was, um, how old was I? How many, five years? Uh, yeah, I was like, uh, yeah, I was like 20, 28. 20, I don't remember, 27. And you hadn't, I mean, obviously you had worked a lot, but you didn't, did you go to film school? No, I, my school was talking to, you know, my friend who's a DP or being on set and picking the camera crew's, uh, you know, heads and like trying to guess lenses and, you know, and, 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 and all the movies that I love watching growing up and the shots that I love watching and this the amount of dissection, like dissecting films that I did my whole life, that that's what I took with me. But I had no, I didn't go to film school or any of that. You know, I just had a dream and, and I knew that I wanted to become a filmmaker one day and I knew that I wanted to say something. So that ended up being my first dialogue. How did you feel like for me, right? And Brian Koppelman, who's, who's a writer that I really look up to and I've had on the pod and has written movies like Rounders and that show Billions. And he talks about, you have to feel special enough to tell a story. Mm -hmm. And he said, so sometimes in moments where you would get writer's block or what have you, he said, I would just walk around New York City and look around until I felt special enough to tell the story. So like, at what point did you feel special enough to take that leap knowing maybe you didn't come from the traditional schooling to to make this thing I think it was just the fact that I've always been a rebel I left home when I was 15 you know I've I've done crazy shit out there because I didn't give a shit you grew up in Miami yeah I was born in Miami and I left home when I was 15 yeah but I was when I was born I lived actually out actually out here in LA for like a few years my dad was working construction in um, Big Bear actually um, and we were living between Woodland Hills and Big Bear, and then we moved back to Miami, and when I was 15, I, le I left. And what was growing up, in, or, or obviously spending some time out here, but what was growing up kind of in Miami like? I, it was bad. Bugged out, right? <laughs> yeah, we grew up pretty poor. Um, just not good. I don't talk to my dad. My mom and I are close now, but I don't really talk to my dad. Same. I mean, yeah. I never knew my dad, but well, I guess same thing. I know all about, you know, not loving your dad. Yeah. And what, I mean, so this is like 90s, early 2000s in Miami. Was it the Miami we know now? Like, was it just bugged out, Euro, cocaine? I mean, know? it was Miami. It's always been Miami, I think. Right. It's, I don't know, Miami, I've, I should go back. I miss it. I think I need to go see it with new eyes. Yeah. Because I... I always wanted to live here. When we lived here as kids, I wanted to come back here. And when I couldn't, it, it really upset me. I felt like I was missing out in life because mm. this is where I wanted to be. So where do you go at 15 when you run away? Uh, I ended up coming here for a little bit. I lived in actually 1121 North La Cienega. I remember that address. I lived right across from that 7-Eleven where I used to go and sneak in and try to, you know, get cigarettes, get people to buy me cigarettes and like booze and shit. Like I was just a rebel. Were you just panhandling? No, I was. Yeah, I'd be like, "Hey, do you mind just uh, get me this? I'll I'll give you an extra ten dollars or whatever." Oh, and, sick! Yeah. So you had the dough. Yeah. You just needed somebody to buy yeah. it. Yeah, I was. Uh, so how it all happened? How what helped me get out of my house was I was at a beach in Miami Beach, and this woman came up to me and she goes, "You should model." And I was like, "Nah, 
I like acting. I like doing this. I don't want to, well, you get to travel and we get to, you know, you get to meet people and we pay for shit. And I was like, really? You're and like, I was already, a word? <laughs> yeah, a word. Perhaps and I, was I, already, I could enjoy that. Yeah. And I didn't, I fucking hated modeling, but I just was like, Same. you know what? Yeah. I know. It's like, God, so I only did it, it for a little bit. And then I, I did plus size modeling. Oh, great. There's not enough plus size male modeling for like, you know, Rochester, big and tall. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I tell you. I tell you. Um, so you're here like as a rebellious model, having people buy you like cheap bit. booze outside of 7-Eleven. I'm assuming Natty Ice and or, you know. For a little bit. And then Light. I ended up moving to Europe for like a little bit and ended up getting into all kinds of trouble over there. And then I moved back to LA. And What's that look like? I mean, paint us a picture. You're a model in Europe getting in trouble. I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting work. I ended up getting into heavy, heavy drugs. Great. Um, got real dark. Sounds like the prerequisite. Yeah. But I wasn't, yeah, I was, I was doing, um, I was doing more of the hibernational heroin shit. You know what I mean? Not like mm. going out kind of partying t- stereotypical model shit. Uh, I was kind of hermited out, well, I guess. Heroin doesn't really mix with anything other than, um, don't bother solitude. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. It's a really good, well, and inevitably, right. I mean, speaking only from my own experience, but as a drug addict, I feel inevitably at its, at my core, what I was looking for was to be okay with myself. Mm-hmm. And like, and I think that's kind of why usually heroin is the last stop for most drug addicts. Cause once you strip it all away from all the partying you thought you wanted to do and all the socializing at its core, like I just wanted to be okay being alone. Right. Yeah. I know. And you feel so good alone. You feel great. <laughs> I've never felt better alone. You know, they say you're only alone when you don't like your, the person you're alone with. But hell, I love being alone on that shit. But anyways, it ended up being what it was. OG, come here. We've got Lena's six-month rescue puppy, OG Kush. Yeah. O-G-E-E. Kush. <laughs> Which, what kind of dog is this? She is apparently a Italian greyhound mixed with Chihuahua, Terrier, and Jack Russell. She definitely looks a little more Chihuahua. I mean, o- only because of her size. No, but she's way taller. Look at that little well, like curve, like the Italian greyhound. She's got really long legs. She looks about what, eleven pounds? Eleven pounds. Yeah. Listen, I, I'm good at eyeballing weight because I've got a twelve pound baby. Oh yes. <laughs> oh, gee, come here. Today. Get over here. Right here. Right here. So you make it out of your, um, anyways, that's all kind of, yeah, it was all a blur, but I ended up moving back here and, and that's how it all started. And, uh, yeah, that's it. What were the, you've had, like, you've worked with so many people and had so many sort of like seminal moments when it comes to acting. Like, are there any one in particular sort of jobs or, or collaborators that stick out for you as, I love working with Rita Moreno. Yeah. She played my grandmother in a show that I did 10 years ago, actually 12 years ago for CBS. Mm. And I loved hanging out with her because she would tell me all these stories because she used to date Marlon Brando, I think, for three, four years. And she would tell me he had a farting problem or something. And That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, Rita. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She would tell me so many stories and she would also tell me that Whoever smelt it, dealt it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It wasn't me, I swear, Rita. Yeah, I swear, Rita. 
And then she would apparently like, I think it was Dolly Parton and her were having a conversation and they were like, what happens when you have to fart on stage? She goes, do you wait for the trumpet? She goes, yes. Oh my God. Yes. I wait for the trumpet. We Dolly used, Parton's farting during the trumpet solos well, for songs? Well, I think that Rita Moreno and her were having a conversation about farting. How do you like, how do you deal with farting on stage? Like, what do you wait for? And they were saying the trumpet. That makes a lot of but, sense. Yeah. I mean, you just got to wait for Veterans. those things. They've got all the tricks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Rita was amazing. It was she was incredible to work with. I'll never forget her. And so now you're like kicking ass on a SWAT procedural show on CBS every well, week. Well, let me tell you, I didn't know. I did not know I signed up to a procedural show. I thought we were doing a serial show. So that wow. for me was a surprise when that happened. Um, when we were doing it, the first pilot and everything, I thought it was going to be a serial show. So that was a bit of a shock. I'm not used to uh, procedurals. And but now you're like, I mean, didn't you train with LAPD SWAT team and all that? Yeah, we uh, we trained with 8711 for stunts. Who's they're probably the best in yeah, uh, they stunt did, like, training the in the Matrix, world. Yeah, they, 300 yeah, and, yeah, they're yeah. fucking awesome, Dope incredible, shit. and that's kind of woken something in me that is something I've been doing. And in the show, I've done majority of all my stunts. The only thing that they won't cover me for is like jumping off a building or running down, you know, like rolling down the stairs. But I think it's bugged out you're doing any stunts, yeah, let alone the majority. Yeah, I'm doing Lena, a lot. What of are them. we doing over here? I Come love on. it, and that's why I just started like I don't know, like it just changed everything. I'm like, okay, I need to get in the best shape of my life. I need to gain 10 pounds of muscle. I need to do this if i'm gonna do these stunts i gotta like get must like i gotta i gotta get bigger so i've taken it to that level so um and it's great that they you know i'll tell i'll tell the showrunner hey i want to do a big fight sequence and they'll they'll make it happen you know and uh so it's it's intense we're you know we shoot almost 10 months out of the year 15 14 16 hour days sometimes and and it's it's just it's intense it's grilling it's intense it's but good dough, but for an actor, like it's, I feel like it's the closest thing to a proper job in sort of the acting world or in entertainment that you can have. Cause mm-hmm. it's, you work most of the year, you get like the summer <laughs> off, like you're a teacher and otherwise you're there. I mean, you're fucking putting in a good day's work every day. Yep. Yeah. It's no joke. I mean, <laughs> fuck Mariska Hargitay must be the richest person alive. Her and Ellen Pompeo and, yeah. but you know, I think they kind of understand too that like, all right, this is my life. Like 17 seasons of SVU. Let's to be honest, do I don't know how they do that. And people love it. People, and my mom, there's not a law and order she hasn't seen. My mom knows who Ice-T is because of Law and Order. Oh my SVU. God. My, my friend cannot fall asleep without that dun dun, the sound that they make. Did you know that the guy who wrote that just a dun dun for Law and Order? OG. What is it? Are you choking on a rock? What are you choking on? It, give me this. Okay, pause. It. <laughs> no problem. What were, you, what were you saying? Sorry for that pause, but OG almost <laughs> killed herself on a rock. Um, no, yeah, whoever did the music for, who has done the music for Law & Order, like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that, those residuals, that person is probably the second richest person in the Law & Order family. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. shit, that's insane. That's dumb money. What the fuck? Like whoever wrote for Seinfeld, like, like that's fucking, that's a million dollars a year minimum. Wow. That's, or the friends thing. Great. Wow. That's fucking bananas. (sighs) That's crazy. Um, so I guess like, you know, my last couple questions and, and this is what I'm always interested in hearing because 
oh man, without sounding douchey, to be like a white male in today's society, I feel like I'm in a precarious spot. Because there's like not much I can say without like completely sticking my foot in, you see, (laughs) without completely sticking my foot in my mouth. And also like, I feel like it's almost like I'm not qualified. I'm not, I'm kind of like not allowed to say anything. And, and so I guess my question to you would be, I feel like of the people that I know and growing up the way that I did, like I do have this sort of hyper awareness for what's right and wrong. And then like the other day I was with a friend of mine who's like very specific about the right and wrong way to do things. And I made some statement like, oh, like, um, you know, girls love popping their boyfriend's pimples. There's sort of a slightly innocuous saying to which she goes, no, girls, you know, liked to pop your pimples. And I was like, first of all, true. But I'm like, fuck dude like really uh, that was nothing what's wrong with that comment i know but like i think what she was trying to be like is there you go like generalizing and like that's why you're part of the problem too josh even though you think you're like as well that's taking it to another level that i can't even relate to okay good yeah right that's a little nuts it gets a little hectic like i don't even have the brain capacity or energy to do that like even think that well i don't even think that like it's coming from you you're having a conversation about Girls love to la da da, and then it could have been like, well, not all girls like to eat pimples or whatever pop pimples. I fucking hate <laughs> pimples. You know that would have been like a conversation. We're out. Right. You don't need to dissect that conversation. There was not more thing, nothing more than, oh, you know, guys love giving me massages. All the guys that I've ever dated and give me massages. I'm like, well, yeah. So what? Right. So what's the balance? Like, what? I guess the question is, what? What are we doing a good job at, and what? probably do we need to be doing better at i think i think men need to inspire more other men like all the good men out there need to inspire other men because Mm. unfortunately because a few men have done what they've done has triggered into all of you guys like generalization generalization of men the same thing where you know you have twenty thousand terrorists and now they're being generalized like the 1.8 billion muslims are now being generalized you Mm. know and so it it sucks when that happens because all of a sudden it bleeds on to everybody. So what I would best I would best say is to inspire other men to have conversations about this and and actually see both sides to things and not just be the bro to be like, well, fuck this shit, like fuck those hoes and fuck this shit. No, let's talk about it. Why why are you so angry or what this? Matt McGorry is somebody I think you should meet um, and you should you should definitely talk to. On your next podcast, he's incredible. He's he's leading that kind of stuff right now, having these conversations, and I think he's part of this thing called Man Up, and and it's all about educating other men how to be men, you know, and and to inspire other men because the only way this is going to change is other men speaking to other men. They're mm-hmm. not going to change because we're having all this stuff. In fact, there's more men more angry at us than ever because of what's happening. They, they act like everything's great and whatever, but now like everything's on the line, their job, their position, their power, everything. So they're upset and angry about what's happening with women. And is there like, you know, I remember, and Bill Maher was talking about this, I think on Sam Harris's podcast where, um, who was it? Matt Damon, when 
sort of everything was coming to light and, and even he expressed that he had misspoke, but he talked about like sort of the gradations of these things and how like we need to look at these as case by case basis and not sort of put them all under one heading. And so like someone sexually harassing or raping someone is different from like a slap on the butt. And he's like, can we all agree that like these two things are in different categories? And then he was so vilified for that that he said, you know what, maybe I should just shut up. And it's like, and so at that moment you think like, is he right? Is he wrong? Is it, you know, are, are we now going to be, are we going to suffer from the fact that people are just saying, maybe I shouldn't say anything because. Which just sucks because, you know, you have to see both sides in terms of hearing people's conversations. And I think what he was saying, you know, about you can't put everything under one umbrella, you know, mm. everything is different, but Unfortunately, there has been a lot of, you know, most, oh my gosh, she just grabbed the other crystal. <laughs> oh no. Oh shit. Look. OG, OG brought us a free the nipple sticker. I'm telling you, <laughs> this is kismic. I've never seen her like this. I think she just is acting out because Josh is here. I'm sorry. I cannot believe she just took the sticker out of my director's book that I have over there. What does she know that I don't? I don't know, but <laughs> I'm going to have to film this situation right now because Please. this is like crazy. What do you have in there, OG? Ooh, free the nipple sticker. Woohoo. <laughs> OG? Um, and again, I don't. I think Matt Damon, Matt Damon should have said, you know, open that he should have talked more and had a, more of a dialogue about it as opposed to saying shutting down mm. i think that's that moment where he could have just had a conversation a little bit bigger it's really tough because everyone's super sensitive about this right now this has been in a lot of women's lives for many 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 years and right now just like somebody said to my friend he goes you're just gonna have to listen for the first time and sometimes the revolution is bloody and that was something that hit my friend because he was like trying to like find out like what like hello like what about this what about that and be like you know what maybe it's time you listen because sometimes the revolution is bloody and there are so many stories so many so many so many stories that maybe Matt Damon saying what he said he came across insensitive I don't think he's a bad guy I think he was in a situation where he said something that maybe it wasn't the right time but there's always a time for something. But maybe in that particular moment it wasn't. Because it felt to other women that he wasn't really listening right. to that to that time where, you know, I've sat down and years ago I went to this agent's meeting and I'm sitting and he asked me, come sit right here. And I sit in the chair and he starts massaging me. And I'm like 18 and I'm like frozen. I can't do anything and I'm feeling so uncomfortable. You know, and like I can't say anything. And I can't say anything because he's an agent that might sign me and I can't say anything. So... You know, the slap in the ass was more about, I think they were referring to, what's his name? What's his name? The guy. I just spaced out on him. Give me a clue. The politician. Oh. Bill Clinton? No, the, shit, I forgot his name, but it'll come up. I oh, think yeah. it was referring to him, that he was actually a good guy. and it was Biden? Back... No. And he was just like, he was the one that... I don't know. He was, I don't know. He slapped some girl's ass or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I look, I remember specifically and, and look, and I think you're so right when you say that, that maybe you just have to listen for a minute because you know, for the scales to even, they have to swing far to the other side. Yeah. And to find some sort of like, because this, these things can't always happen in inches. You know, sometimes it's got to really yeah. take a severe push and to find the right medium. And I remember once I was at a party with a very prominent, I was, I was with a buddy of mine and it was this big fancy Hollywood party that I didn't belong at. And there was like this really prominent actor who's come under a lot of fire as of recently for being predatory with other guys. And I just remember getting introduced to him and feeling as though, and as a man, I've never really experienced this. And I would love for certain women to look at me like this, but he looked at me in this way that felt like predatory. I, I like literally felt like he was going to attack me. Right. And like on some level I was flattered, uh, <laughs> but on another level, I, I felt as though this is specific. It's a one-time thing. It's a novelty for someone like me. And also like my safety is not at jeopardy here. Like I know that if we were alone in a fucking alley and he wanted to have his way with me, like he'd have a time getting right. me to submit. But like being in a female's position who has to like ward off advances like this constantly and feeling like their safety is, is, you know, in the balance, I imagine that would get fucking exhausting, <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. And like, I remember my wife telling me this, like, and she lives, she comes from like an affluent neighborhood where she was like, there are times like during the day where I wouldn't feel good walking around my neighborhood because of like some random cat calls. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and these are just things that I would not be hip to if I wasn't learning this as part mm -hmm. of the new conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best thing to do right now. I think it's, 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 listen and i think also you know know that people are very sensitive right now yeah. and and also i have you know i have a lot of guy friends who who are all on board on this and i have a few guy friends that are upset you know they're angry they're like fucking women i can't do shit anymore and this is not and this is somebody that has never been disrespectful to women i said don't you be careful talking like that because then people are going to think like why are you so angry about this like you he's not been that kind of guy ever right. but he's upset because he can't apparently chase girls like he used to i'm like well you can always chasing is fine it's the way you do it that ch mm. it's changing now and and um well it kills all the romanticism and all of it i'm like no you can still do all of that you're taking it to another extreme but it took a nice conversation between us to kind of find a way for him not to be so upset and that's what it takes having these uncomfortable conversations and sticking through them as opposed to just kind of be like, I'm not having this conversation. Fuck this. Like, I'm not talking anymore. You know what? I'm going to shut up. Like, no, have those conversations. The same thing with the conversations that we're afraid to have right now with people that don't believe uh, in what we believe in politically. You know, there's a major divide in this country. And I think we need to stop putting more fire into that divide and, and find ways to connect and find ways to listen to one another on each side. And that's the biggest problem that we have right now. We're not listening to each other and I have a lot of friends from different parties and and you know I I'm always trying to actively be that person that listens as opposed to like react or push somebody out of the conversation or quick to judge and I'm not I'm not doing that and I don't want to do that and that's why my circle of friends is so you know, it, there's a variety. Everyone's from all walks of life because I accept everyone. Mm -hmm. And we find a way to, you know, agree to disagree, but we also find a way to understand each other and be like, you know what, I get what you're saying. And that's the reason this divide is so deep and so big is because 
we've stopped um, wanting to have conversations. We've stopped wanting to listen to one another because we we can't get over the fact that you know you voted for this guy, or we can't get over the fact that you're standing behind this cause and this and this and that. And that's a big problem because that divide is only getting bigger. Yeah, I mean, I rant about this constantly on the pod of like, I feel like we are like the limousine liberals in our coastal cities screaming at the middle and they scream back at us like, fuck you, we built those cities. Like, hating Donald Trump to me is like, like, hate the well, not the sink. Exactly. You know, like the water is poison. Like, he didn't win by military coup. I realize he didn't win the popular vote, but nevertheless, like, you know, he's representing what not a few people think like not the majority but a a fair amount and these are people who are like some family members of mine like these are people who i've come into contact with who for all intents and purposes only have shown themselves to be like lovely fairly level-headed you know benevolent people and yet there's like this divide where we just think very differently when it comes to this thing and I just want to better understand it because I, I don't think yelling at each other, we're only, we're just burning down the middle. Yep. You know? We are. And I think that's about doing the same thing on the other spectrum of what's happening with women right now. And uh, and just having those uncomfortable conversations with guys, with girls, with everyone, because that's what's going to take. How do you understand somebody if you're just listening to answer right away? You have to listen to really understand and really listen to not just want to answer back. You know, and that's the thing. We're all reactionaries. We're all, you know, everyone's hitting certain parts of our wounds. And, and, and as long as we can see that we're all wounded and that that we're being triggered and we're reacting based on other things, not what's really currently happening, then we can actually learn from what's happening. And that's and that's the whole thing that's, that's happening right now in, in all kinds of things. There's so many extremes right now, you know, in all levels. But I think it's all part of what needs to happen for the growth to happen. And of course, for every sort of movement or something that seems like incredible, there's all this downfall with it as well, you know? Right. Of course, there's women out there that have, you know, probably lied to make the situation worse. For sure. For sure. And, but, you know, I talked to somebody, I won't say who, who he's a top, he's the top lawyer of a big studio company. And, uh, they were doing kind of like a thing where they were talking to everybody about they have to do these tutorials. They have to talk about what's happening because it's part of like any job, any show, any movie that you do, you're going to have those people come and talk to you to educate you on everything because they don't want to be sued. They don't want to do anything. So they want to make sure there's an open communication about it. Sure. And one of the guys was like, well, do you think it's true? All these allegations. And he goes, listen, in our studio, almost all of them have been true. And he was like, wow. He goes, we've gone into all of them. Almost every single one of them has been true. So there is a small percentage that is not, yeah. obviously. And uh, But that's what I'm saying. We need to all listen and not just say right away, oh, she's fucking lying or this and the shit. Like, we need to all listen. Yeah, I think it's that balance. And, and hopefully we get better at it. And, and it's not only finding itself as it applies to, as it applies to women in these matters, but but many things in the respect of like, it's honoring the accuser and fully vetting stories and getting all the information possible and 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 honoring exactly what their sort of uh, what their plea is and yet also like giving people due process because in this day and age like to be accused is to be guilty right and it's right. such a, a scarlet letter that 
to even purely be accused, even if inevitably the investigation proves that there wasn't substantial evidence or right. it wasn't true. It's like, you know, people lose their livelihood. Yeah, instantly. And that that's that there's that's what I'm saying. It's everything is so extreme. And uh and then that's why people are like, oh, I'm not even gonna even go on a date with a girl. Mm. You know, they're afraid. I mean so and that's when you we have to be there to have a conversation. I'm like, well, you don't need to take it to that extreme, you know, like so there's there's it's everything everything's heightened. Everyone's super sensitive right now and what did you take now? Oh gee. What do we got? It, it looks like tape. Yeah, she she mm -hmm. demolished my director's book <laughs> from back in the days. But um, um, but yeah, so I think you should definitely talk to Matt McGorry. Yeah, Do you know who he is. Ah, uh. he's awesome. He um he was one of the leads in Orange is the New Black, and now he's in a How to Get Away with Murder. Okay, but he's like an active feminist, and and he speaks about all of this. And he's it'd be great for you to connect to them because you're gonna, you guys are gonna love each other. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, Okay, last question. It's the thing that I ask everyone who's on the podcast. Yeah. What are the one or two Lena Esco commandments, um, truths that you have discovered for yourself while your time on this earth that you would want to impress upon someone else? Um, whatever you do uh, with your subconscious 30 minutes before you go to bed. No, so let me take that back. My bad. This <laughs> is when my mind starts to go in different directions. Whatever you do 30 minutes before you go to bed, is what you're giving your subconscious to work with all night. And remember, your subconscious can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy. So whatever you put it, it will believe it's true. So don't be on your phone 30 minutes before going to bed. Don't be on your TV. Put something productive into your brain. Your don't brain, fall asleep to law and order? No, I mean, but then you're not... Remember, that brain of yours, that subconscious brain is like is like your, your master. It'll do whatever you want it to do. If Word. you don't put anything, you're just going to fucking be flat all day the next day when you can be coding it mm. with the way you want it to work for you and that's something that i've i've done for many years and it works i write down the way i want to feel tomorrow i write down the way i want to feel all week i write down what i want in my life and i put that when i'm nodding off and falling asleep every night like you have to do it and you have to write it down in a piece of paper when you're nodding off and you go to sleep and that's what you do you you code your your uh, system up there that's something I do every night. I think it's something you're going to live a happier life if you right. do stuff like that. And I think, I think another thing is really important that I can't go one day without it. And it's not spiritual or any of that because it's, it's been scientific proven that it works. I think meditation is really important that we do this every day because 99% of our thoughts are repetitive and things that never, ever happen. And if you don't know how to shut that down, it's going to control you. You got to put, put a leash on that brain. It can be the most powerful thing working for you or it can just master you. So those are the two things. I think uh, make sure you know what you're doing 30 minutes before you go to bed and making sure you're doing something good for your, you know, because whatever, eight hours, seven hours that you're sleeping, that's your brain's like working on whatever you give it, whatever you code it with. So meditation and uh, coding your brain before you go to bed. You heard that, y'all? No law and order. <laughs> and get a get the Headspace app. Yeah, and get get Law and Order before the thirty minutes before. And Headspace work. Headspace works. All those things work. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This was the best. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Of course.
That was it. That was Lena. She was so good. Come on, guys. How about that interview, right? We get thoughtful over here. This ain't just about the jokes. This ain't just about the laughing haha. This is about you looking at yourself and thinking about where can I be better? What can I do to try to improve myself as a human being on this planet? Because the truth of the matter is most of us suck. And it's important that we, the people, the listeners of the Curious Podcast, and me, your host, push ourselves to be better, to at least try to, like, I don't know, like, set an example for these knuckleheads out there who are fucking it up for the rest of us. You know who you are, Dad. Anyway, guys, have a great week. I love you. Thank you for listening. Um, Sorry, a car just drove by. So I'm going to leave you with this. Love you. Bye.